It was in the bulletin, but in case you didn't see it, just a reminder that Sunday school, uh, the kids are back at regular school, so that means our Sunday school classes are back up and running, and that uh, is next Sunday. So for Sunday school teachers, for parents, for Sunday school kids, uh, Sunday school is back up next week. Well, it's been a full morning, and I trust you've been encouraged uh, as we continue the theme of missions, but uh, we do want to open up the Word of God and meditate on the same subject as God will teach us. Uh, and you don't have to turn very far. Just to begin with, we're going to look at a number of different scriptures, but the first one will be Genesis 1. So if you want to just head there. And as you do, um, most of you might have known I wasn't here last week, and uh, that's because I was in Hamilton, Victoria. I uh, wish it was Hamilton Island, but it was Hamilton uh, Victoria, which is about seven, eight hours due west of Melbourne. I ended up flying into Melbourne, taking a bus to Ballarat, and then from Ballarat, another two-hour drive to Hamilton, just to give you an idea how far out I was. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, and I, I didn't until I arrived. Hamilton is, uh, or was, uh, the, uh, the wool capital of, not just Australia, the wool capital of Australia, uh, of the world. And uh, I can see, could see that with sheep everywhere. And it was quite scenic. You had the Grampians out uh, just on the other side of town. But uh, I was there for a conference, uh, the Presbyterian Church there, and the minister I know invited me with another pastor. And the the conference was on evangelism. So it was kind of timely coming into Missions Month. I was kind of in an evangelism headspace. Uh, And the two weeks prior to heading out there, as we discussed evangelism, the believer, I took all of that with me. Uh, And we had a great time. I I spoke uh, twice on a Saturday, uh, giving the biblical theological basis for evangelism, and the other pastor gave kind of more the practical side of evangelism than I preached on Sunday morning from Exodus 19.17. Are you prepared to meet God? You know, um, I've said this over the years, one of my favorite texts is Exodus 19.17, where it just simply says that uh, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's, that's what we do. Uh, and that, that would be a good missionary text. That would be a great evangelistic text. Uh, that's what we do. We, we introduce people to God. Um, and so uh, I had a great time that Sunday morning, and then Sunday afternoon did a bit of Q&A. And so coming back this week, again, I'm still in this evangelistic uh, mode, as it were. And uh, one of the benefits of of teaching, uh, whether it's a classroom or even from this pulpit, um, is that during the week you write, uh, you study and you write down everything that you uh, are putting together. But in the in the process of teaching, certain things that you hadn't thought of do come up. And that's what happened last weekend. And even during the Q&A, some other things in terms of their questions and the little dialogue I had with the people there, other issues uh, around evangelism and missions came up. And so... Um, I I thought, well, I hadn't really discussed some of these with uh, you guys, and so uh, today I would like to. I'd like to kind of continue on what we were talking about from a couple weeks ago and bring you some, hopefully, some new things, some added things uh, related to the subject of evangelism and the believer or just missions in general. And really, the, the one thing that stuck out to me that I hadn't really thought of before uh, was the, the emphasis that when we're talking about missions, uh, 
We really got to begin with this idea that it is a missio dei. That's a Latin phrase for the mission of God. This is where it all begins. We can talk about the mission of the church. We can talk about the church's corporate responsibility uh, to missions. We can talk about the individual's personal responsibility to missions. But where it all begins is this idea of the mission of God. Missions and evangelism all begins with God Himself. And this is why I took you to Genesis 1-1, because one of the best missions verses is the very first verse of the Bible. And you know it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you say, well, why is that a missions verse? Because, first of all, in that verse, it establishes that God is what? God is creator, yes, but in saying that God is creator, that God is king. He is the king, the Lord over everything. And over you and me. And from creator to king to lord to ultimately meaning that he is the judge of everything. And so that puts missions in perspective. And by the way, this is why the doctrine of creation is so important. This is why you need to get the doctrine of creation right. Because it establishes not just God as creator and our relationship with him, but ultimately, as I said, it establishes that God is judge and we are sinners. And then something from there I hadn't thought of before, just a few verses down. In verses 26 to 28, you have this creation mandate. Then God said in verse 28, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Three times now, the image of God to make the emphasis. He created them male and female. And then this in verse 28, God blessed them. That's the man and the woman. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Uh, And the emphasis, as I said, is on the image of God. That's man, that's woman. God made them in his image. And we could talk about a little bit later what, or some other time rather, what what exactly that means. Uh, But just to suffice us to say is that by being made in his image is that we reflect God. We reflect reflect God in a number of different ways. Certainly in the verse, we reflect him as king because we rule and we subdue. But as image bearers, or at least at the beginning here in this creation mandate, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth Multiply, fill the earth with what? More image bearers. So you have this Adam and Eve who were image bearers, and in being an image bearer, they glorified God by reflecting God. And by being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, it was a world full of what? Image bearers glorifying God. I mean, it's one thing having two people glorify God as image bearers, but a whole world full of image bearers glorifying God. God. Now, of course, this is pre-fall, right? This is Genesis 1. The fall comes in Genesis 3. But even in post-fall, the creation mandate is still there. Even in post-fall, the mandate is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the problem, however, as you know, is that instead of having flawless, innocent, God-glorifying image bearers filling the earth, what do we have now? 
Ever since Genesis 4, we have guilty, marred, God-hating image bearers filling the earth. So what does that tell us about uh, about missions? Well, in in a really in a soundbite, you could look at missions this way. Missions is going to the ends of the earth, going to where all those image bearers have filled the earth, giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, so by the grace of God, the image of God in them can be fully restored again. Does that make sense? You get that? Let me say that again. Missions, you could say it this way, in terms of the mission of God, the mission is going, or missions rather, is going to the ends of the earth, going to where all those image bearers have filled the earth, giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ so that by the grace of God, if, if God perhaps is kind, the image of God in them can be fully restored again. The image of God hasn't been destroyed, but it has been marred. And part of salvation and part of being born again is so that we would now be conformed back to who? The image of his son. So that image of God can be restored. It's, it's, the, it's the curse being restored. Back to its original purpose in creation. Hopefully that made sense. You could probably say it a little bit better. But the point is... The point is that of missions is to reverse the curse of the creation mandate. That's something we haven't discussed before, and we need to see it in that light. To say it another way, God has always been interested in the whole earth and the nations within. Why? Well, again, the point of Psalm 24, verse 1 where the psalmist simply says, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who live in it. So, where does missions begin? Missions begins with God. This is God's mission. Now, what, what I find fascinating, and I hadn't really thought through it a whole lot, but you can trace this mission of God uh, throughout the Old Testament, we often think that missions begins at Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, but it doesn't begin there. It begins all the way back in the Old Testament. It, as I said, it could even trace it all the way back to Genesis 3. But as you trace it throughout the Old Testament, uh, you, you can see that God always has an interest for the nations. Now, if you're handy with your Bible or with your phone or whether you look up the Bible, uh, the verses, uh, let, let me just give you a few. Otherwise, just listen. But you remember, you remember the story of David and Goliath? You remember how Goliath was taunting um, Israel and the armies of Israel? And here comes David. He's just bringing lunch to his brothers, and he hears this. And what does he do? He gets worked up. And he decides, well, I'll, I'll fight this guy. If nobody else is going to fight this guy. Would you believe that an evangelistic text is tucked into what David has to say? In First Samuel 17, verse 46, he says this, and listen. Today, he says, the Lord will hand you over to me. He's talking to Goliath, of course. Today, I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then, all the world will know that Israel has a God. David's an evangelist. And the way he's going to tell the world... That Israel has a God is chopping the head off of Goliath. Now, I wouldn't recommend that 
in your evangelistic endeavors. But the purpose, the end goal is the same. God always has an interest to make his name known among the nations. You can, you can find this in the prophecies of Isaiah. Just listen to this. Here, uh, in the end, the nations, the Gentiles, were envisioned as coming to worship God in his temple. Isaiah 42, 6, he, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and, for, and I will hold you by your hand, and I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, and, here it is, a light to the nations. And we'll talk about that more in, in a moment, but that was Israel's function. That's the church's function. We are a light to who? To the nations. Solomon got in on this. He understood this. Remember when he built the temple and there was this long dedicatory prayer of the temple. It's interesting that in his prayer he had a concern for the foreigners. He says this in Second Chronicles 6, 32 and 33. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel... But has come from a distant land because of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, may you, O Lord, hear in heaven in your dwelling place and do all the foreigner ask you. And then this. Then all the peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and know that his temple I have built bears your name. This is, this is the goal. The goal is that the Lord's name would be feared and that they would know his name. Back to Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says that God's house, the temple, would be a house of prayer for all peoples. He says, as for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and behold and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Why? For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel, for all nations. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. When I read that verse, I couldn't help but think of Simeon. Remember Simeon? Simeon there? Old man? God promised him there in Luke 2 that he would not die until he saw God's Messiah. And remember Joseph and Mary walking with this little baby and Simeon takes that baby in his arms and what does he say? He says, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, for you have prepared it in the presence of all the peoples, a light for a revelation to the nations and glory to your people in Israel. Even Simeon understood. He understood the prophecies. God was always interested in the nations. The mission of God is not just to Israel. It's to everyone. Jeremiah. He notes that the Messiah's reign extends beyond the borders of Israel. He says in Jeremiah 3.17, At that time Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne and all the nations will be gathered to it to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. Here's an interesting one. Tell me if you hear a little bit of the allusion of Genesis that I read for you a moment ago. 
Habakkuk 2.14 says that in the day, for, er, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. As uh, the sea creatures filled the waters of the sea, as the image bearers filled the earth, well, there's the same word, same word, same verb. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. Malachi 1.11, My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. So many other verses. I think you get the point. Let me just give you one last one. And this is Isaiah 45.22, which is really the evangelistic appeal that goes out to the whole world. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the heart of God, mission of God. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, of course, throughout Israel's history, uh, that, that message did go out to the nations and we do know of some of those individuals in those nations that did get saved and received the grace of God. You remember Rahab? Rahab in there in Joshua. She was a Canaanite. Ruth, the Moabitess. Caleb. You remember uh, you know that song, Twelve Spies, Ten Were Bad and Two Were Good. Well, the two were good were who? Joshua and Caleb. But did you know that Caleb was not an Israelite at first? He, he was brought into the, the, the nation of Israel, but he was a Kenizzite, a Kenizzite. You remember in the days of Elijah during the drought, he went and visited the widow of Zarephath, which was just south of Lebanon. He went to a Gentile. Naaman, you remember Naaman with his leprosy, the Syrian commander? Do you remember the Assyrians at Nineveh that Jodah went to? Let me give you a few more, but I think you get the point. Make sure you understand that missions, evangelism, didn't begin at Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. As we've just pointed out, missions, God's mission, all begins back, all the way back in Genesis. Think with me, just real quick. The book of Genesis and the structure of Genesis. How do you normally divide Genesis up? Genesis 1 through 11, and then what? 12 through 15. Why is Genesis 12 very important? Because that's a pivotal point. Genesis 12 is the, the calling of who? Of Abraham. You look at Genesis 1 through 11, you've got the creation, you've got the fall. In fact, can I say this? You've got three falls or three rebellions going on in Genesis 1 through 11. I don't know if you've really picked that up. You've got the rebellion in Genesis 3, you've got the rebellion in Genesis 6, and you had the rebellion in Genesis 11. Right? And then you have Genesis 12, which is the table of nations. And so just from a bird's eye view, Genesis 1 through 11, you see man uh, being fruitful, filling the earth, but spiraling down in his wickedness. Uh, in fact, you, you see a couple of times that it says that he moved eastward. He moved eastward. And eastward uh, for, for an Israelite was where it was a metaphor for evil. And moving eastward was moving away from God. 
And so here's man in his wickedness, every thought of intentions of his heart growing wicked, building a tower. Why? I don't know. Maybe he wanted to overthrow God. Maybe it was his, his temple to worship their man-made gods. The point is, they weren't worshiping the one true God. They were spiraling down in their evil, and God says, enough is enough. And that's when you come into Genesis 12, and God says what? I will make you a great name. Remember all the I wills, I wills, I wills in Genesis 6 and Genesis 11? That's man, man, men of renown, men who want are proud and want to do their own thing. Nothing's changed. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Enough is enough. In fact, turn over to Genesis 12. You're in Genesis 1, but just turn over a few chapters to Genesis 12. And you see this calling. The Lord says to Abram there in verse 1, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And notice the I wills in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here comes how God's mission is going to be fulfilled. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You're my man, Abram. Through you, through your descendants. And of course it was Abraham and then it was Isaac and then it was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And, and, and out of those 12 sons came the nation of Israel. And Israel became God's means of being a, a, a mission to, to the nations, as you know. In fact, turn over to Exodus 19. Let me show you something there. I mentioned Exodus 19.17 as one of my favorite verses. But a few verses up to this. In verse 6, you see what Israel was in terms of their function to the nations. Start with verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you, by the way, they're at Mount Sinai. They've left Egypt, as you know. They crossed the Red Sea. Now they're at Mount Sinai. And this is the, the covenant that God's about to make with Israel. This is the calling of Israel as a nation now. In verse 5, he says, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine. Back to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And verse 6, And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nations. Moses, these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Now, holy nation, that makes sense. God is holy. They are to be holy. The rest of the nations aren't holy. This is going to be a people of my own possession. You're going to be separate from all the peoples, and you're going to be mine. I, that makes sense. But notice it says, you will also be my kingdom of priests. Were they going to be a kingdom with priests? Absolutely. But it doesn't say with priests, does it? It says kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, it means that all of them collectively will be acting, functioning like a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest teaches. A, a priest represents the people to God. It's a, a priest, like a prophet, is a mediator. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. Kingdom assumes royalty, kingdom, but they're going to be a kingdom of priests. 
all of them, not just the Levites, not just the Aaronic priesthood, the high priest, all of them together. That was their function. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. How were they going to be a light to the Gentiles? They were going to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to be teachers, God's teachers, the one that's going to represent God and proclaim God and speak for God. Now, Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, understood that. And if you take your Bible and turn over to 1 Peter 2 for a moment, you'll see that here in Peter, that job description has now been transferred, as it were, to the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, You yourselves, Peter says, he's talking to the church, you're living stones, a spiritual house. You know, we're not a, a, you know, a temple with brick and mortar. No, we're, we're living stones, a spiritual house, and we're being built to be a what? Well, this is the first time. He mentions priesthood twice here. But here he says you are to be a royal, or sorry, here he says in verse 5, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here he uses the, the imagery of priesthood. We're a priesthood, but he knows he, the adjective before priesthood is holy, which speaks to our worship. Everything described in that verse speaks to our worship. We are worshipers. God called us to be true worshipers. And then as you, you move through the verse there, you notice that he then contrasts us with unbelievers. And then you come to verse 9 where the, the contrast is, but you. You see that? But you are a chosen race. And this is the language of Exodus 19. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, the, the reason why Peter uses royal priesthood instead of kingdom of priests is because he's quoting the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. I guess to the same point, even though it's worded a little differently. But he says there, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and then what? A holy nation. And here, where you have back in verse 5, our job description were, uh, is really, we are true worshipers. Here is our job description as what? Well, keep reading. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may, What? Proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We're evangelists. You see that? We're true worshipers, but we're evangelists. We are a royal priesthood. We're a kingdom of priests. Now, go over to the book of Revelation, if you will. In the book of Revelation, John picks the same imagery up. Revelation 1.6 to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. And here it is. And made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Same image all, all the way back in Exodus 19. Go over to Revelation 5. Picking up at verse 8. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's his goal. That's always been his goal. Every tribe, language, and people and nation. And then verse 10, what does it say? 
You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Just like our Lord. Now, we haven't gotten to Hebrews 7 yet, but when we get to Hebrews 7, what's the whole argument of Hebrews 7? Jesus is a priest, but he's a priest according to what? The order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek, Melchizedek was not just a priest, but he was also a, a king. Jesus Christ is a king and priest, uh, a king and priest, and guess who else is? His people. We are kings and priests. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign. That sounds like royalty, doesn't it? On the earth. So, look, a number of other texts we could put together, but I think we've said enough to make the point, and the point putting it all together is this. It's to show you that God has always been interested in missions. Right from the very get-go. Because missions is about making God's name uh, in all the earth. It's about proclaiming who God is. Proclaiming his goodness. Proclaiming his righteousness. Proclaiming his holiness. Proclaiming his justice. And just go right down the list. So you see that right from the beginning and you see it right through the Old Testament with Abraham. You see it with Israel and then ultimately you see it with his son and you see it with 